21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. In this programme, we'll be talking to Marion Moss, who has worked at the Fields Children's Centre in Cambridge for 30 years. Marion tells us what it's like to work at the centre and explains her fears about the impending closures of children's centres and what that will mean to the children and parents who use them. Bobby speaks to Alison Naylor, the community projects officer at the Norris Museum in St Ives, and gets very excited about some 1950s exhibits they have on display there. And Liz catches up with Sandra Burney and Louise West from Huntington Drama Club, who talk about their forthcoming production, The Thrill of Love, the story of Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in the UK. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. studio as usual we have bobby jones welcome back bobby thank you hello yeah. there you were away on holiday last month oh, weren't was. you, you it was were. nice and warm in cyprus oh don't make me jealous well, it was nice to have you back and to liz kelly hello hello I, I haven't been anywhere no you haven't been anywhere oh, i've been putting up with the snow and all the rest of it yes, yes you have yes as have i as well mm. well that's not strictly true i have been somewhere mm. i went to florence was it any warmer no, it was pouring with rain, actually, to be quite <laughs> honest. <laughs> what have we got coming up this evening, Bobby? Marion Moss has been working as a teaching assistant at the Fields Children's Centre for 30 years. She tells Linda Ness about the changes that have taken place over that time and, importantly, serious changes the centre may be facing. Teach your children well their father's help did slowly go by. Marion Moss, who works for the Fields Children's Centre in the Abbey area of Cambridge, has just celebrated her 30th anniversary in the job. The centre describes her as amazing and one of the unsung heroes who make a difference to young children's lives. So we wanted to speak to Marion and find out some more. Marion, these days hardly anyone stays 30 years in one organisation. It's quite unusual, actually. It is, yeah, it is, but it's been fun. You must really, really enjoy it there. I do, I love it, yeah, it's good fun. So tell us about when you started back, uh, I think it was more than 30 years ago, because you were volunteering there to begin with, weren't you? I think it started way back when we were the tiny little Dittonfields Nursery on Wadlow's Road. And both my girls went there. And then when the younger one was there, I started to help volunteering. And then when she moved on to school, I was offered a few hours to support a child with learning difficulties. Uh, I can remember him. (laughs) He just had some um, global delays and needed a little bit of support, you know, to catch up. So you got him back on track and he went off to school after that, presumably? Yeah, he went off to school. Usually the children that we support are only usually with us for the the one year and then they will move off to one of the primary schools depending on what their needs are will depend you know mm-hmm. where they will go after mm-hmm. now tell us about children's centers because i think a lot of us know about children's nurseries you know you can you get private nurseries that you pay for what what's the difference between these and a children's center well the children's centers in particular the part of our center that i work with have very um, well qualified teachers in the centre which obviously in a private nursery you don't get but as well as that the centre offers an awful lot to children and families in the area so many different areas of 
support with groups for parenting courses, offering creches. We have midwives come in. We have health visitor supports. We did have till recently have family workers, which used to go out into the community. So an awful lot going on, offering all age from babies up to preschool. So it's a real hub in the community yeah. for people with children so they get help, support, the, the yes, whole Yes, and whole it's gamut. very, very much needed. I think every child, every family that comes through, you know, have said they need, these young children need this support and having the, you know, the teachers in there is very, very important because they are so, so well qualified mm-hmm. in the area that's needed for them. And of course children's centres as we know are under threat at the moment. I'm assuming your your place is, is one of those places that are under threat, the fields? Yeah it's still, I personally don't really know what's going on. All I know is that financially there is a problem. The government aren't supporting the children through promises that they made. So many cuts are being made, funding has been cut and it feels as if slowly we you know, are possibly going to be dismantled. In fact, the first part of that, I've been told, will be happening in April. We are losing one of our groups. And it's quite worrying after working there so many years and feeling, you know, I've enjoyed the work and I feel as if it's been needed for the children. And it's quite worrying now about what will happen to children's centres and the fields in the future. There probably Mm -hmm. won't be a legacy, (laughs) which will be quite sad you know that you would like to talk about and pass on but yeah at the moment I don't honestly know what's going to happen with so, the field. So that I mean the options for parents will will be more limited presumably there'll be private well, nurseries. this is the only worry that um, it's not knowing what is going to happen yet for those parents you know it would be great if we could continue as we are but the government don't seem to be wanting to listen to all the you know the the protesting that's going on and all the information that's being shown to them that it is very much needed they don't appear to be listening it's all all about money these days isn't it it definitely is yeah cutbacks and money and it's annoying when you do feel and you hear that they are giving themselves a huge pay rise (laughs) that they're um (laughs) you know doing that rather than supporting the children that need this input so Mm -hmm. yeah so tell us about the work that you've been doing there over the years. You, you've done sort of different jobs effectively. Yeah, I I work usually work with a child on a one-to-one basis with needs. They all differ. Over the years, I've worked with a child with Down syndrome, Williams syndrome, autism. That's obviously becoming quite a problem for a lot of children. Some are, you know, severe behavioural problems. I also support children where English is an additional language. Mm-hmm. We do groups helping these children you know, so that they can listen to, for instance, the story of the week in a small group. And then when they go to their bigger groups, they're familiar with some of the the words and the language. And obviously those parents are supported. There is a teacher that is, um, she supports and does sessions with the parents. Yeah, it must be hard for them going to school because it's much better they get that preparation before they go to school so they're ready to learn. There, There is a lot. We have an awful lot in the setting. There's a lot of children from all different areas and different languages. So they do need that. Um, extra support and a lot of them you do see them over the year that they're with us 
you do see the English in a lot of them growing and you know you see them becoming a lot more confident around their peers. I dare say and children are like sponges aren't they they just take it all in. They do and once they feel confident they do tend to open up and listen and learn and a lot of them then are you know a lot more like prepared for their school. Yeah. And I also do lunches as well within the setting. So that's um, quite enjoyable because sometimes you are with children that at home won't eat certain foods. <laughs> um, so obviously we encourage them. We have, um, eat the greens. <laughs> yes, of course. We encourage. We don't force, but we do encourage. <laughs> so yeah, we have, this is another thing. We have a lovely kitchen with an amazing cook. She's absolutely brilliant and dishes up you know some of the best lunches and the children love them so yeah it would be sad if anything like that changed because it is all so necessary all so relevant do you think it's very very different nowadays the center to to the way it was 30 years ago when you started yeah there's a lot of changes obviously we've we've grown it's a lot lot bigger the setting that we're in now as a center rather than as the very small nursery school i think it's changed in some ways it was difficult as me being quite set in my ways in the old system but as we've gone along and grown you can see that it is quite important to have so much more space this is the thing we have got the fields we've got an amazing inside and outdoor area it's uh, really vast Mm -hmm. we've got a huge outside area with a lot of equipment we've got an amazing grassed area where the children can run and explore and they do campfires where oh, really? once or twice a term, I think it is, the parents are invited to come of an evening with the child. So, yeah, there's an awful lot that goes on. It's a great fun. It is. It is really good fun and it is a lovely place to be. So it will be sad. If well, let's happens. hope that at least part of it is able to be retained in some shape or form. It would it be good. But yeah. at the moment, I don't think any of us really know exactly what's going to happen. And that must be quite a worry for you personally as well. Personally for me, it is, because obviously I'm getting on now, <laughs> and thanks to the government, not quite able to retire yet. So, yeah. you know, personally, financially, you need it to continue, as well as socially, and I don't want to, I don't feel as if I'm ready to have to pack up yet. <laughs> kind no. of thing. I want to carry on working, I still enjoy it, but if it came to an end, I honestly personally don't know what I would do, you know, work-wise. I just don't think I'd want to start all over again. <laughs> so, no, but you do have a wealth of experience and I'm sure that that could be deployed somewhere else. But you're right, it's a thought, isn't it? At this sort of age, you don't really want to have to start somewhere else. You don't. It's, no, getting so close to the working years being finished, I'd like to hang on to the last little bits that there are. Yeah. <laughs> But who knows? And it sounds like a fa- fabulous place as well, the fields. It is. It is really good. Our last offset was great. It was outstanding. To think if you're, you know, if you get inadequate or one of these, you know, sad sort of ratings that, you know, put you down a bit. Yeah, and there's lots of think, work okay, to be done. Yeah. Maybe there's reason to be looking at it going. But when you've, everybody in that place works so hard. I work with an amazing team of colleagues and teachers, the head, you know, they all work so, so hard for the children and the families. So it did shine through and it was a lovely feeling for everybody to get that amazing 
result from the Ofsted team. I, I can imagine that would be celebration time, really. Oh, wouldn't definitely, it? it was. Yeah, I can imagine great. that's a real boost. Good team effort. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you were saying there's other uh, people there as well that that have been there around about thirty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They so have it's not been. Yeah, there's a, there's a handful. Yeah, there's a handful that have done that amount and more. And there's an awful lot that have done you know a good few years as well. So yeah, a lot of families are coming in. And children of children, you know, that, that I've helped and yes. worked with, we're seeing their children coming in now. So that's lovely as well, that there's a lot of families come through that you're familiar with. I was going to ask you that as well, actually. Do do some of the children that you have gone through, do you still know them? Do you still see them yeah, coming back? Yeah, a lot of them. They, they remember you and, and you remember a lot of them. And sometimes it's a shock with, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you're that age now. <laughs> <laughs> that does make you really feel your age. <laughs> But yeah, it is lovely. It sounds like a brilliant kind of job to be doing. It is. It's lovely. Yeah, you do get a lot from it, especially when there's a child that's got so many problems and you get their trust and they build a relationship with you, you know, to let you help them. Um, And then you see them change in so many brilliant ways. It is lovely. It's a lovely job. And when you say goodbye to them, that must be a sad moment as well. I noticed that in primary school when the year sixes leave all the children are in tears and so are the teachers it must be exactly the same in nursery school it is because especially if you're doing a teaching assistance job on the one-to-one level a lot of the time you build up a stronger relationship with that child because you're spending so much time with them and the parents obviously you're you know I feed back to the parent of the child that I work with each day about what kind of a morning she's had so you're you're talking to parents probably you know a lot more than you know some of the other children's and so you do you do get you get quite attached as well. I can you know, imagine, and especially in the one-to-one yeah, situation that you're working hard. in. But then it's lovely. You also feel that they are ready. You've done your job and, you know, they are ready to move on. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, and, is, and off they go to school. Yeah. And yeah. in a much better position than they would have been had they not had yeah, somewhere like that to go. Yeah, you feel like as if you've given go. them that little bit of, um, you know, an extra helping hand, if you like. You know, not made everything go away or not made everything better for them, but you have help them to maybe gain that little bit of extra confidence to move to the next level of where they need to go. Well, Marion, thank you very much for coming in and telling us about that. 30 years in one job, well done. Thank you very much, Marion Moss. Thank you. Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and was Linda Ness chatting to Marion Moss who works at the Fields Children's Centre. The music was Crosby, Stills and Nash. Teach your children. I remember 30 years ago and I can't imagine having been in the same job all that time. It's just amazing. When it's something that you love doing like it is for Marion, that's great, isn't it? Mm. Isn't she a hero? She's definitely one of these unsung heroes. She is. 30 years. Well done, her. Well done, Marion. Yes, mm. I think she, she is one of, your, of our inspirational women that we like to uh, have on every show. But she is very, very anxious about this business of mm. the children's centres potentially having to close. And she said that one of the reasons, and she didn't say this on, on tape, I think, but one of the reasons was because the um, the government had promised more childcare. I think it's um, 30, 30 Thirty-three hours of childcare during term time for three and four-year-olds. 
but the money that's been additionally added to cover that doesn't cover it. So the centres are kind of struggling to make ends meet. Mm. This is not really a new story. It's just got worse, basically. Mm -hmm. The up the hours last September, I think. Yes, I mean, it's very difficult for nurseries, particularly private nurseries, who do use the scheme and do work the scheme um, because they obviously have to pay staff at a proper rate. Mm -hmm. And the amount of money that the government give to them for these little ones to come along really doesn't cover the, the amount of money, not only for the staff, but for the running costs and everything else they're losing money all the time so private nurseries have to think really hard about whether that's the way that they want to go or whether they say i'm sorry but i can't take any children that have got vouchers yeah and i know that we used a private nursery for a while when my daughter just before she went to school but it was expensive it really was so you have to be earning enough money to justify that cost not Mm. easy no no, I mean, I can remember when I was working at one stage that I had a, a younger woman with me who had got a, a child in a nursery and every single penny that she earned in the office was paid to that nursery for his um, the, the money that he had, had to so pay. So in the end, it's not really... So she was, she wasn't, wasn't working for she herself. She was working for the childcare, yeah. which, you know, I, I suppose it gets you out. It keeps you busy. Working to keep your, your career o- Keep your career going. O- yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what it was about, yes. Very difficult. And it's very difficult, the childcare thing. Yes. Yeah. This is 21st Century Women. In 1955, Ruth Ellis was the last woman in Britain to be hanged. The press portrayed her as a glamour model and a woman of low morals who was no better than she should be. However, Ruth continues to capture our imagination. Huntingdon Drama Club are about to present The Thrill of Love by Amanda Whittington, the story of Ruth Ellis. Director Sandra Burney and the actress who plays Ruth, Louise West, dropped in to speak to Liz Kelly about the play and the Ruth that they have discovered. Thank you for coming to be interviewed today about the production of Ruth Ellis's life. So I've got with me in the studio Louise West, who is playing the part of Ruth Ellis, and also director Sandra Burney. So Sandra, why this play? Why did you decide to put on The Thrill of Love? Well, I was reading lots of different plays. I'd been invited to direct, and this was the one that stood out as being interesting. It really grabbed me from the beginning. I I think that um, Ruth Ellis as a character has stayed in the public consciousness because obviously she was the last woman hanged in Britain in 1955 and I think the public perception is obviously influenced by the media who at the time portrayed her as a, a glamour model who in a fit of passion killed David Blakely and what interested me about this play was that it raised more questions about that given story. Is it a very black play? It has its serious moments but I think what's very interesting is that it's balanced by looking at Ruth Ellis's life and the sorts of characters that she would have mixed with and also some of the humour is very cleverly written by Amanda Whittington to balance the obvious seriousness of the subject matter. Sure. Mm. Was she quite a a lively, spirited 
kind of person do you think oh, Did I, she, I would she so. have had a good sense of humour oh I think so I think the sort of work that she was doing entertaining high class clientele sort of and um, we're talking the upper echelons of British society at the time the lords the ministers the top one percent she would have had to be entertaining she was no wallflower she was somebody who could get in there and uh, laugh and joke with anyone she was quite a young lady, wasn't she? Mm, she was only 28 when she was hanged. Yeah, mm. so she'd had quite a colourful life. Yeah, absolutely. She came from very humble beginnings. She had already been married. She had a daughter who was three. She had a son who was 10 at the time of the hanging from different fathers. I think she had had some medical issues as well, some medical issues, and uh, had also had abortions, ectopic pregnancy. She, okay. she had been through the mill. So you have cast Louise yes. in the part of Ruth. What did you have in mind for your Ruth Ellis? So I had a, a visual picture from photographs of the time, but I also wanted somebody with the strength of character to show us the passion that Ruth had. And in auditions, that's what impressed me about Louise, that her strength was there. So Louise, what did you do to prepare for this part for the audition? So it's a story that I've been quite interested in before. I do like true crime. So I, I was aware of the story and had done a bit of research, not as much as we have now done. Yeah. But it was in honesty with the audition. We never know what we're going to read to audition. So it was a really interesting audition process because we had a lot of improvisation and then reading from scenes. And I think, for me, I got to do three different segments within it. And one was extremely emotional, one was very funny, and one was the quite pivotal confession scene, which she is extremely blank and very controlled. For an audition, it was absolutely wonderful because you got to do three very different sides of the same woman. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout this play, that is the absolute gift of this play. Very often, if you have a female part, you play one note so you are okay, either yeah. very emotional and a mother or you're a maid and Ruth is she goes through everything within this one play and so do all the other characters it's four female parts and one male part so the female parts across the board are funny emotional dramatic and it's very even-handed it's not just Ruth being the main character it gives so much for four actresses mm. to perform together which is actually quite unusual you rarely Definitely. get something... There can't be that many plays no. that offer a real such a woman's perspective. Yes, and it is from a woman's perspective. It, we don't actually have David within the play. He's oh. mentioned, but he is not within there. So it's looking at the women's internal lives. So it's much more focused on people's emotions, how they respond to situations, the relationships between women, which is a real change. And the writing is so good that it, it does bounce along. As yeah. well. I, I read that Amanda Whittington's something like the most popular writer of plays for women. Mm. I can understand it. It's, yeah. The dialogue's fantastic, but also it gives you so much to work with. It's a really good play. So who are the other characters then? One of the characters is Vicky Martin, who was also a real-life person. Um, she's one of Ruth Ellis's friends, and she was kind of a more successful version of Ruth. She was very glamorous. She moved into sort of moving in the social set with Diana Dawes. She was dating a Maharaja, and I won't tell you quite what happens to her, because that does kind of come into the play. 
But she was a slightly younger, very glamorous, very intelligent woman. We also have Sylvie, who is a fictional construct, but she's the manageress of the club that Ruth starts working in, who's kind of the mother figure, but in a very strong manner. She rules with an iron fist. And she's also very funny. And Doris, who is the sort of the heart of the play, if you will, she's someone who is much more sensitive but also very caring and very, very funny. We have one male role, and that's Gail, the detective, who is actually the one that Ruth gives the confession to, but who really the plays through his eyes. So he's the one that's trying to unpick the narrative that we've been given. So he's kind of the audience substitute. Yeah. So he's the one that's looking at it's not all black and white. So if it was such a situation was happening today, would there be a different outcome, do you think? I think what would happen today is that her abuse from David Blakely would be taken into account. I think the charge would be reduced to manslaughter and there would be all sorts of mitigating circumstances. The situation at the time, with the law as it stood, meant that they had no option and she offered no defence. She confessed straight away. So she put the noose round her own neck, mm. really. That she, she, It's almost as if she would rather that and somehow reunite with David in the hereafter than suffer 30 years in prison and come out to ring, nothing, you know, I to nothing. Yeah. Mm. In doing that, she sounds to me quite a principled sort of person. I think she's very strong. I think she's very determined. I'm still making my mind up about Ruth. I think that's what's so interesting about the play. She's a very complex character. Have there been particular challenges to adapt the play for the club in Huntingdon? Well, the, our main challenge currently is that the Commemoration Hall is closed sure. and that has been the home of Huntingdon Drama Club for years. But what it has allowed us to do is to take up the challenge of putting on plays in different locations. So this time we're going to All Saints Church. When I went in there, the first thing that struck me was the beautiful floor. Yes. It's got a beautiful labyrinth floor and I didn't want to cover it with seats. So what I've chosen to do is the audience will be sitting in a big oval and we are acting in the middle. Sort and of in we're the round. Sort of in the round, yeah, in the oval. What we will do, and the, the labyrinth becomes almost a character, but the labyrinth is deliberately used at certain points in the play. So there are times when just by their positioning we're acknowledging the space and the gift of that beautiful floor. Will we feel like we're back in the 50s? Hopefully, yes. And partly through the music, partly through the costume, partly through the movement, the way the people move. And we've worked very hard on the sort of poses that were very popular in the 50s, the Diana Dawes-style poses. Both Vicky Martin and Ruth Ellis had worked at the Camera Club, which we discovered was actually quite an upmarket place. But they did have evenings where photographers would come along and they'd have models and they took photographs of these models. But those sorts of poses have been really important in helping especially the Ruth and Vicky and Sylvia characters look period and they're walking in a certain way I'll let Louise tell you a little bit about how that feels (laughs) yes so for me the movement's been one of the most important bits about getting into character and probably one of the most difficult even when you sit 
in a modern way it kind of takes you out of character and it takes you away from from the 50s thing so can you sit now for my benefit so, for, for how you yes. might sit as Ruth <laughs> so as you can see I have a lot better posture yeah. as Ruth <laughs> um, but little things like for me Ruth had rheumatic arthritis in one of her hands so in every photo you don't see her left hand okay so it's things like that that we've been working in and although I'm sure the audience won't particularly notice it's something that really adds to the character things like it's not a song and dance production <laughs> but yeah. there is a small amount of dancing yeah. which has been researched by our chairman of our club actually to do the moves are accurate and period and it makes a huge difference in in hand movements which is brilliant for the radio (laughs) (laughs) it's okay i saw it yeah yeah well hunting and drama club do actually focus a lot on the details research is always there isn't it yeah this one has been very research heavy we've been on a tour of london oh yeah where Um, did you go we went on a wonderful taxi tour I think you could probably tell more than I can on this. So um, I was trawling the internet in the early days of the research and came across the London and UK Ruth Ellis taxi tour. Contacted Ray Coggin, who runs these things. Oh, yes, we can do this. So a couple of weeks ago, four of us went down to London, met Ray, who took us on this fantastic tour of London, visiting all the sites. So starting with where she worked, where she lived. I think one of the best things about the tour, from my perspective, was that it overturned some of my preconceptions. I had been completely convinced by the media hype at the time about the image of her and that had coloured my judgment of her so I had been imagining Soho seedy and what he revealed was upper class she was a clever woman she was working in the top strata of society and the camera club I'd imagined as down some back alley somewhere not at all the camera club was in a beautiful square with those white houses with pillars outside I mean it was stunning Mm -hmm. classy and I think that's what was the biggest surprise for me. We went to the site of the actual murder. We went down down to Holloway Prison. Anything that we asked, Ray was able to feed our imaginations. Mm. He, he's an absolute expert. And yeah, we were very lucky to get on that. On the Friday night, you mentioned you've got a special guest coming along. We have. Monica Weller co-wrote the biography of Ruth Ellis with Ruth Ellis's sister, Muriel Jacobate. And she is going to be at our performance on the Friday. And she will be doing book signing. I'm very, very happy to welcome her there. It's very interesting because the timing of this, it's almost like the stars are aligning because she is consultant on a new BBC three-part history of the Ruth Ellis case, and that starts on the 13th of March. And people are very welcome to come and meet her and get their book book signed. Yeah. So we just want to say that tickets are still on sale. I think there may be two left for Saturday, but that's it. The tickets for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are also selling really well from the Huntingdon Drama Club website. And the dates are the 21st to the 24th of March at All Saints Church in the Market Square.
That was Sandra Burney and Louise West talking about Huntington Drama Club's production of The Thrill of Love, which, as they said, runs from the 21st to the 24th of March. The music was, I tried to tell you, from another production of the story, the musical drama Ruth. Do you know, having listened to that interview, I actually really fancy going to see this play. It sounds Mm. fabulous. The space of performing in sounds great. And they've done so much research. You just know that's going to be a good production, don't you? It will be, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And having a good script is always a big thing, isn't it? The question that you asked about Ruth Ellis, what would the outcome be today if she had, you know, done the same crime? I thought that was a very, very good question. Obviously, she wouldn't be facing the death sentence because we don't have that anymore. But still a really, really good question because would it be treated... A bit differently today. Would it be treated a bit more as a crime of passion? I'm really interested to know how long she would actually be given to that. She'd probably be out in about five years, wouldn't she? Maybe. Do you not think she might have had psychiatric treatment or something and been put Possibly. away somewhere th- because because she just kind of accepted it and just sort of she did. But I think and... I think they have read a bit about this as well, and I think they did investigate her. They had a, a, psych- a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm not sure which. Um, spending quite a lot of time with her and they concluded like two of them separately concluded that she was completely sane mm. but it's kind of interesting because the, the, there was something that said that she'd told somebody that she didn't really remember anything about it so all a bit odd yeah all a bit weird and why should the gun to begin with and who where the gun came where from came was from, never yes. quite clear yeah but very very interesting interesting story yeah, there's a, there's a lot to learn about it, and I think also the uh, BBC programme will be worth a watch. Yes. In tandem, probably, really sort of soak up the detail. Yeah, and get, interesting. Get your head around it. I also like the fact that um, that they do the research. I love the fact they they went up to London and did the tour, and that really sub, you know submerges the actors yeah. in understanding totally they can picture it can't they yes. they can visualize it they can visualize where they're standing you know yeah. if, if they go to the place where it happened and yeah. and all of the other places that she was i think that was great mm. well if you uh, if you fancy seeing that you can go to their website the huntingdon drama club website and find all the information out that you need on that well coming up next what have we got oh well talking about 1950s bobby Mm-hmm. We're staying in the 50s for this one. This is uh, almost like we planned it, which we'd never do, of course. This is 21st Century Women. Bobby met up with Alison Naylor, who is the Community Projects Officer at the Norris Museum in St Ives. Like all museums these days, it's not all about a few items in glass cases. Alison tells Bobby about the work she does at the museum, and in particular, about a 1950s exhibition that's on at the moment. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. I am talking to Alison Taylor, who is the community officer for the St Ives Norris Museum. They have got an excellent exhibition on at the moment. Tell me about that, Alison. Our most recent exhibition is uh, about the 1950s, the decade of glamour. So there is an opportunity for people to come along, reminisce, remember those days of the big skirts, the teddy boys, the music, and really go down memory lane. And also for, for younger people to come and have a look where they, they can sort of see what it was like because vintage fashion is in at the moment. So actually to see what it was really like in the 1950s. 
That's true. It's, it is very in at the moment, isn't it? Yes. In fact, uh, I have been and I have seen this exhibition and I would recommend that anybody who remembers slightly this era, and I do only remember it slightly, but uh, it's amazing. And it just brought back a lot of memories. Particularly, I was interested in, there was Audrey Hepburn, and there's a lovely photo of her, and she's got this beautiful tailor-made Givenchy dresses. And, of course, she was famous for Breakfast at Tiffany's and the famous little black dress, which, in fact, I think most of us women have got one in the back of the wardrobe somewhere. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a staple for every woman's wardrobe, isn't it? A little black dress. And if we could all look like Audrey Hepburn, wouldn't that be fantastic? What else have you got on display in there? We've got lots of things about um, like making your own clothes as well because um, the the, uh, the Butterwick patterns were massive in the 1950s, making yeah. your own dresses. It was just after the war, suddenly rationing was over. So suddenly fabric and things were around. And I think that's part of the reason why the big skirts came in because no longer were you trying to make as much as you could with tiny bits of fabric. It was suddenly, right, I'm going to have a big full skirt, loads of netting because we can. And so we've got bits about um, how, making your own clothes and that sort of thing as well and just about day-to-day life of the 1950s and those big events that happened in that era for me the textile side is really exciting because I love dressmaking and I love the history of fashion yes uh, dressmaking was very much a thing and I was surprised at how many magazines you've got down there women's magazines my weekly (laughs) I can remember my mum having my weekly every single week I can remember her sitting by the fire because of course we had a real fire in those days reading her my weekly and it really brought back memories it was terrific and I was turning the pages and looking through but it was the adverts that caught my eye and there was one particular advert that I absolutely loved and it was about corsetry and it said Get your weight down with Alston's rubber-reducing corsets and take inches off your figure. Try this most comfortable foundation garment which slims your figure into a flattering lines of beauty. Clothing fits better and too tight dresses can be worn again. Ah, oh, it's hysterical. And, of course, there was a beautiful picture of somebody in one of these dreadful corsets. <laughs> That's the joy of those magazines, is you can sit and read them. And they've all been donated to the museum. Um, We had a wonderful donation of Women's Weeklies from 1940 to 1970. We had about 200 to come into our handling collection. So we're able to get them out for people to read and to reminisce and do exactly what you did and look through it. Because those adverts can tell you so much about about what life was like and things we've forgotten. That's right. And yes, I mean, I was just sort of turning pages and it, it reminded me of different things. There was one there that said... Um, clipper stair rods, you know? We, when do we have stair When did stair rods go out? I've forgotten all about them. <laughs> and, but there were still some um, adverts that happened today. There was Anna Din and um, Max Factor. Mm. I was surprised about that one. Cadbury's Drinking Chocolate, that goes back a long way. Oh, it does, yes. Wow. Knight's Castile. Yep. Well, anyway, there you go. <laughs>
all sorts of things. And of course, it, the um, the exhibition does explain about teenagers. Oh yes, the birth of the teenager. It was, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and rock and roll music. And suddenly these young people having this freedom no longer being a mini version of their parents. Suddenly they've got, they've got diners to visit and coffee shops to go to. Maybe not quite Italian coffee being served, but it's still the idea of that, that sort of Hollywood American life coming over, fashion, mm. makeup, music. It was all a very exciting time in the 1950s. Yes. And to hear stories of people who lived through it is just amazing to think, you know, that again, coming out of this wartime where everything was so tough yes. and everyone was living day to day, suddenly the 1950s came and it was that explosion of freedom that then led into the 60s. But the 50s just seemed to be this real time of excitement, music and fashion. One through a party in the county jail The prison band was there they began to wail The band was jumping and the joint began to swing You should have heard this knocked out jailbird sing that And one of your exhibits in there is a Wurlitzer jukebox. It certainly is. And it works because I was pushing the buttons amazing we do you, like the museum to be full of music so if you come to visit make sure you try all seven tracks and if you want to get driving you're more than happy one of the big things in the 1950s in fact 1955 rock around the clock with bill haley sold over a million records one million three hundred and seventy unbelievable and then there was uh, paul anker with Diana in 1957. He sold over a million as well. And then, on exactly the same year, Mary's Boy Child with Harry Belafonte, and he sold exactly the same number as the Diana with Paul Anker. Fascinating. So if you're interested in music, go along and have a look at that as well. So, yes, there's fashion, there's textile, and if you're in the mood, you can actually dress up. Oh, very important. Yes, there is dressing up to have a go at, and you can. There's a some like we've got some guitars that you can hold and take some photographs as well. So uh, you can just pretend you're back in 1955 if you wish, and uh, maybe on stage with Elvis if you wish. <laughs> That's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. While the Norris was closed, I know that you took the museum out into the community. Are you still doing that? Oh, absolutely. Yes, um, we do try to do more in the museum now that we have our building back and our new community space where we can hold activities and events. But yes, me and my car will travel a long way with museum objects in the back. And also the learning officer is out and about um, in schools and in community groups as well. So yeah, we're out and about. If you can't get to us, we can certainly come to you. I know that you do some work with some youngsters who are learning disabled. Oh yes, so um, we've created what's called a tactile museum. So we do a lot of ob- um, object handling with young people and talking or with adults and talking about the history of the objects. But there's um, if you've got learning difficulties, disabilities, sometimes understanding that past and understanding what it's all about is, is not always the right, uh, not always possible. So I've created tactile museums. So you, these young people are still holding Roman objects that are two thousand years old, um, but they're touching them, feeling them, smelling them, and using different sensors to have an experience with the objects. I had an amazing experience. There was a young young lad who was who was blind and was deaf on one side, and I ran a tin car up the Victorian glass washboard, and the look on his face was just amazing because the sound these two objects 
objects made together. So he was learning from the objects, interacting with them, but in just a completely different way. And it's just, we did an amazing project with Sense, who are based in Knapwell. Um, we did a walk, we did a tour of St Ives. We did an art project with them, and they've come to visit the museum. So they know that the museum is theirs to use. It's their history, and they can come and enjoy it as much as anybody. I love how you joined in there, Bobby. (laughs) I hope everybody heard that. That was Alison Naylor speaking to Bobby Jones about the Norris Museum in St Ives and its exhibition, A Decade of Glamour, 1950s Fashion, which runs until the 28th of April. Now, I have just ascertained, because we were just chatting, that you two have actually been to see this. Yes, and you should go. Yes, I should, shouldn't I? It sounds great fun. And and Bobby, I almost remember this. I I don't think you could possibly remember the 50s terribly well, could you? I was young, but Uh yes. Yes, I do remember it because it was a time of glamour. Mm. Uh, I I can remember the can-can petticoats and actually having a can-can petticoat underneath a dress, which really was not made for a can-can petticoat. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we used to do. It used to be homemade as well, wasn't it, in the 50s and 60s? So it wasn't that long after the war. No. And everybody was trying to make do and mend, weren't they? That's right. But it sounds like a great exhibition. Yeah, and is. the My Weekly is well. Do you know it's still going? The My Weekly. I know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually like, <laughs> I like that magazine. My granny used to get the My Weekly. Um, it was every week, wasn't it? Of course, it was because it's My Weekly. Weekly. Yeah. The, 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 the clue is in the title. Yeah. My granny used. To, I used to love it, and I still do love My yeah. Weekly. Actually, I'll bet they've changed though. I'll bet if you got one from today and put it side to oh, side yes. with a fifty-five one or something. You would notice the difference. I think you probably would. I'll bet the articles are very different as well, don't you think? Mm. The topics of discussion would be things that back then they just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have, you know, been allowed to talk about, really. Well, no. it, was, it was very homely. Mm. I mean, they they had all the knitting um, patterns right. in there. Mm. You know, all, all the... You still do take, get take that, w- of course. Y- what, in, in magazines? In, in, in my, my weekly. weekly. I thought they oh, still did the knitting. Okay. Oh, looked, it looks very, very complicated to me, but I, yes. can, I can remember my mum reading me the uh, the comicy bit, the little bit about the the Robin. Oh yes, I can remember my mum reading. It was a, it was a serial, yeah. Yes, I remember so every that. week she would read me this, and it was only just one picture, not a whole comic full. It was just the one picture and a with story. a little story. I remember Tiny that story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, that, you see why I got so excited. I wonder if they still it. do that, uh, Rowena. And there was somebody else I can't remember. Robin. Oh, they were great little stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Oh, but yes, weekly. it was. It, it was very homely. Lots and lots of recipes and knitting and sewing and. And did they give you advice on cleaning your stair rods as well, Bobby? <laughs> 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 Bobby's just been explaining about uh, this being a. <laughs> A task that some people used to do. Uh, Yes, I mean, I can remember my grandma taking the stair rods off and you had to uh, sort of twist them and and open them up and bring them and then she would put them all on the table on on a newspaper, of course, and then she would madly clean them until they gleamed. They looked fantastic. (laughs) And then you had to put them back very carefully so you didn't get your fingerprints all over them.
The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. And that's the rule applying to um, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, I think, isn't it, Bobby? Yeah, that was um, a quote from the Queen. That was Queen of Hearts. Was it? Okay. What on earth are you two on about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what we're talking about is the National Trust. It was all over the papers beginning of this week and it was an advert for Land Hydrock House and Gardens, which is a National Trust property over in Cornwall. And there was a big furore because somebody had made a big mistake and had photographed an image of cream tea for Mother's Day, which was just last weekend, with a photograph showing the cream being spread before the jam and in Cornwall you don't do it that way It's a bit odd though because the jam would surely sink into the cream and make a bit of a mess so why on earth would you want to do that anyway? I would never put jam on after cream would you? No I always put my jam on first and then put my cream on the top Yes, But that's the Devonshire way of doing it you see if you were having butter and jam, you'd put the butter first, so why not put the cream first? Are you from Devon? No, I'm just trying to be practical about it. But apparently, the reason for putting the jam first is something to do with cream melts, if, it, if the scone's warm, so it's better on top. But uh, it depends whether you come from Devonshire or whether you come from Cornwall. And, of course, Cornish cream and Devonshire cream, it's very, very contentious if you're down in the West Country. I think whoever did that in the marketing department should be getting a rise because it's gone national, hasn't it? This Lanhydrock house and garden has now got so much publicity out of a scone done the, the wrong way. It's a bit like hanging your toilet roll, though, isn't it, really? Now, I hang my toilet roll with the toilet roll coming down the front. That is the way toilet rolls should be hung. Some people hang them down the back. If I spot such a hideous crime, I actually, and I don't care whose house it is, I turn it round. You're not one of these people who polishes the stair rods, are you, Linda? I don't, chance? I don't have any stair rods, but should I have stair rods, I think I would have to polish them. Yeah, I can feel about your toilet rolls then? Indifferent. What, you don't care how they hang? No, not at all, Linda. Well, that's an outrage. Well, I always have mine at the back. What? There you are, see, she's off again. (laughs) You can't hang your toilet roll down the back. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. Why? I don't know, I suppose it's because I've always done it that way. You know, I once read that Cliff Richard, he's got a thing about this as well, and if he ever sees the toilet rolls hanging the wrong way, so if ever he were to visit your house, he'd turn them round. I was reading in the paper about a lady in Haverhill who was uh, was given 50 quid on Mother's Day, just dropped through her door. She's a, a single mother of five. And someone sent £50 through her letterbox in a random act of kindness. And it said, random act of kindness on the card. That's fantastic, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Has, has anything like that ever happened to you? No. 
Aren't there some nice people about, though? Well, this is becoming a bit of a thing because recently there was a couple of stories about people in trains and there was one young girl who was a student and she was talking about the fact that she didn't have any money, she was on the phone to her mum or something and somebody dropped some money to her. They just put an envelope down, an envelope down as they they got up and left the train. And in it was a, a lovely card saying, here's some money. I, I remember when I was a student and your story rang true with me, so here's some money. It's nice, isn't it, to, to think that I mean, we see such terrible things in the news and, and such horrible things that people, there are people out there who are thoughtful and who are looking out for the opportunity to do something yeah. that will help others. I think it's becoming a bit of a thing now, this passing money to... Yeah. Maybe a stranger. I, I've heard of this sort of movement called random acts of kindness. It's a bit like instead of giving something up for Lent, do something, something randomly different. kind. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good idea. You know, even if you just did something once a day, that would be quite nice. Mm. Even just letting someone out of a side road in your car. Exactly. It can be really, really small. It doesn't have to be monetary at all, mm. does it? Just thoughtfulness. Yes. I think that's a good idea. Maybe we should do this, you know. Send an encouraging email. Or gift an inspirational book. Start a fundraiser. Now, this is all coming from the randomactsofkindness.org website. This is a great idea, isn't it? Write a handwritten letter. That's a random act of kindness. Nobody would be able to read it if I sent them a handwritten letter. It would be a random act of unkindness. It, it would actually be <laughs> a random act of nastiness. <laughs> Bake someone a cake. Yes, another one that they probably... A random act of illness. <laughs> <laughs> you want a day off, I'll bake you a cake. <laughs> Laugh often. Is that's a random act. I could do that. I laugh a lot. Start telling jokes, watching cat videos on YouTube or whatever makes you laugh. That doesn't sound quite so altruistic. I suppose it makes other people laugh as well, though, doesn't it? It might do. And it cheers you up. And therefore, you then want to cheer other people up. So, Liz, what are you doing for Easter? I haven't decided. Have you? No, no, I, I haven't decided either. Are you going to be staying at home? No idea. Are you going to be making a Simno cake? It would be nice. You're going to be rolling your egg. <laughs> rolling my egg? Yes. Ooh. We used to roll eggs as children. Did you? Paint the eggs. Hard boil them first, obviously, okay. or else it was a bit catastrophic. Hard boil them, paint them, and then roll them. Were you on a hill? Uh-huh. Sometimes you were on a hill. Sometimes you just had to spend a lot of time crouching down and rolling them if you're okay. on the flat. <laughs> it was better on hills, to be fair. Yeah. I think probably that made the whole sort of painting the egg worthwhile. Well, you know, it did, I suppose. But I did notice that when you used to... Because you used to eat the egg afterwards, and it would be a bit of a funny colour inside. <laughs> <laughs> no worse than when it originally came out of the chicken coop, probably. I bought four Easter eggs today because I noticed that Easter eggs were flying out of the shops and I was worried (laughs) that if I didn't buy an Easter egg for my grandchildren now, when it got around to the day before Good Friday, there wouldn't be an Easter egg in the shop to be bought. So I bought four Easter eggs. 
I'm just ah. laughing at the idea of the Easter eggs flying out of the shop before they're even hatched. Were they, were they going cheap? Cheap, cheap, <laughs> cheap. No, they weren't going cheap, cheap, cheap. It was, it was a special offer, but not for four, for three. So I had to buy three and then one. Oh, that must have gutted you, that extra one. <coughs> you should have got six to make it more worthwhile. You could have given Liz and I one. Have you noticed this year how a lot of the Easter eggs come with some sort of gilding? No. Well, a lot of them. I mean, we, you've got the usual that, you, you know, we have year in, year out. But there's mm-hmm. sort of new styles of eggs that have ov- obviously been spray-painted. Pen- oh, I don't spray know about painted. that. No, I'm not They're too not sure They're not cars. Either. No. They don't really look very edible. No. no. I mean, nothing beats, let's face it, the cream egg. Oh, actually, plenty of things beat a cream <laughs> egg. I've never got through one in my life. Really? A cream egg? Ugh. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I must admit, I'm not, I'm not that keen on cream eggs. Ordinary eggs, hollow eggs, I don't mind them. I always get very cross because they're hollow, though. Yes, because you're looking for the cream, that's why. But these days, of course, they always have a little bag inside them with some other sweets. I'll tell you, the disappointment as a young teenager, getting a Cadbury's cream egg, but a big one. You know, the big, the big ones? And they had a couple of little ones inside the box. And I thought, wow, this cream egg's going to be really, really good, that big one. And crashing into it and finding it was hollow on the inside. The disappointment still lives with me. It's tarnished me. in this edition of 21st Century Women. Our huge thanks go to Marion Moss, Alison Naylor, Sandra Burney and Louise West. If you're listening to HCR 104 FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And on Cambridge 105, it's 105 Sport. The show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. And we'll be back in April. So until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones... Goodbye. From Liz Kelly. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. 